one of the most prestigious universities in the U.S. is Harvard University. It's in Massachusetts. It was founded in 1636 by English Puritans. And at that time, their mission statement, as you see on the slide, was this. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. So that was Harvard's mission statement in 1636. Uh, here's their mission statement today, according to their website. Our mission is to educate the citizens and citizen leaders for our society through the transformative power of our liberal arts education. And if you look at the university's history, uh, the evangelical commitments that are, of course, clear in the founding statement are, in fact, nowhere to be seen, not mentioned at all. You might think that's a good change, you might think that's a bad change. We can discuss the different perspectives on uh, education, what makes good education, but there's no doubt uh, they've had a change of direction. There's no doubt they've shifted from their original mission. Uh, this is an example of what is called today mission drift. Mission drift is the inherent tendency of organizations to drift from their founding or their original mission. It happens slowly, it happens subtly, uh, one writer I looked at this week compares it to being nibbled to death by ducks. So <laughs> it's slow and it's subtle. Um, <clears throat> it can happen to churches too. It can happen to churches with a, a large and, and uh, solid organizational structure. Uh, ICP being, uh, shall we say, um, we enjoy a general lack of organization here. So we're somewhat immune to <laughs> organizational drift. But we as a church can have mission drift really whenever we let anything turn us aside from the mission that the Lord has given us. And so that is why Paul writes, I believe that's what we see in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. We see Paul challenging that church and ours here today to stay true to their founding mission, their original mission, to avoid mission drift. Now it's difficult to know you're drifting if you don't know what the mission is. So our mission is that given to us by the Lord Jesus to make disciples of the nations, Matthew 28 and other places. We've observed that much of what Paul writes in these two letters, that so much of what he writes is intended to equip them to take the gospel further. That's, that's what they were already doing. So a lot of what he writes is to equip them, to strengthen them as they take the gospel to their own region and beyond. So the mission is making disciples. That doesn't mean that other things aren't important, fellowship and, and, um, and teaching and small groups and all of those things are important, but all of that relates to making disciples. But all of this also has to be built on and permeated by the gospel. These are not just tasks. These are gospel-driven things. And our mission to make disciples flows from and back to our ultimate purpose of worship. You see, evangelism and discipleship and missions, all of those things will end one day. But worship will continue forever. So to paraphrase John Piper in a book I highly recommend called Let the Nations Be Glad, he says this, something like this, I've adapted it a bit. Worship is the fuel and goal of our mission. It's the goal because we simply aim to bring the nations into the enjoyment of God's glory. It is the fuel because passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in evangelism. Now by worship, I don't just mean uh, the musical part of our worship. I don't just mean every song sung. I mean every note played and every word spoken. Every slide advanced and every setup of equipment and every greeting given, 
Every table set up, every karuna donated, every prayer prayed, every lesson taught to children, every bite of food and every drop of coffee that's prepared and consumed, and all of that when it is taken down and cleaned up and put away for next week, and everything we do from today until next Sunday when we gather again, because all of our life, our entire lives, every moment is to be an act of worship. Because in all that we say and do, we simply exalt the worthship, that's where worship comes from, the worthship of Jesus. We acknowledge the worth of Jesus in all that we do, in every choice we make, everything that we say and do. So that's our ultimate purpose. Evangelism, discipleship, all of that flows out of that, again, to bring people into that, the enjoyment of God's glory in worship. So in 2 Thessalonians 3, we see Paul challenging them to stay true to the mission and to deal with an issue that could cripple or hinder their mission. So the first five verses, we see the challenge to stay focused on the mission. First, he challenges them to prayer. Chapter 3, starting at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. So the prayer he wants is mission-focused, right? He asks them to pray that the gospel, the message of the Lord, will advance through him, through his team, to spread rapidly. Uh, literally, it means to run or to, to uh, progress or advance freely. It, it emphasizes really the removal of obstacles, so the removal of whatever might hinder that. Um, and he wants them to pray for a response. He, pray, he wants them to pray that the gospel will be honored and glorified as people receive it through his witness and their witness and ours as well. Now, I can't help but think that he looked back to those three Sabbaths in Thessalonica and just marveled at what God did in that time. Paul expected fruit where he went, but this was really astounding to have left. And as we saw at the end of the first letter, left here is a church. They know they're a church. They have recognized leadership. They, there's so much in place after just three Sabbaths. It's really astounding. I think Paul looked back on that. Not only that, but they are actively sharing the gospel around and beyond their region. They're known all over for what has taken place in their lives. And I think Paul would have loved to see that happen everywhere he went. And he saw that in some places, but not everywhere. But he had no control over response, and neither do we. He couldn't control how people responded to the gospel. His task was to be faithful to the message, trust the Lord to change hearts, bring the harvest. And I think that was important for them, for the Thessalonians to understand. It's important for us to understand as well. Paul didn't play by different rules. God saved people through his witness, through his preaching. And he would do the same through theirs. He will do the same through ours. But no one can make this happen. So we pray. So if we want to stay true to our mission, we must pray. We must pray consistently, intensely, regularly. As we saw in the last chapter of the first letter, pray constantly. Um, and it is because prayer is essential to the mission. Um, the mission, because the mission depends on the Lord, not on us. As a friend of mine, an evangelist, R.F. Gates, I know none of you know him, but just in case, you happen to be an old person from Louisiana and you knew R.F., um, as am I. I take all those boxes, old from Louisiana. So, um, but R.F. would say this, we must do what can be done. We cannot do what must be done. So we can and we must share the gospel, make disciples, seek to see that happen to the ends of the earth, but we cannot change people's hearts. We cannot do that. We cannot cause them to turn to Christ. We cannot cause them to love Jesus more than they love sin. 
We can't do that. So we pray because the Lord can and does change hearts. He can do what must be done. And if we would stay true to our mission, we must honor the gospel just like he wants them to pray. We must honor the gospel in our own lives and be faithful to it. We have to keep it central. You know, I used to think the gospel was something that we just shared with lost people. And then you just sort of moved on to other things. But I have come to realize in recent years more and more just how central the gospel needs to be in my life. And I am learning to preach the gospel to myself every day. And I would encourage you to do the same. We just cannot depart from the gospel. I think that's why the Lord gave us things to do like baptism and Lord's Supper because the gospel is, is illustrated and preached. And those things, remember what Jesus used to say at a baptism? He said, they're going to preach the real sermon. I'm just going to you know, say a few words after that. It's, there's some truth to that, although we have a lot of words. But so do I. So that's okay. Um, so in verse 2, he also challenges them, again, in terms of staying focused on the mission, to faithfulness in suffering. So verse 2, And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So he also asks them to pray for him and his team as they suffer. And notice, he doesn't ask them to say, pray that the suffering ends, pray that all this nonsense stops. He just says, pray that they would be delivered. And deliverance can mean a rescue from temptation. It can mean protection, I mean, from uh, suffering, persecution. It can mean protection from it, rescue from it, or receiving strength through it. That is to suffer well. And we don't know how that's going to be. Any, any of those options are available, right? Suffering is, is very much a part of life. If, um, but we can trust the Lord to be faithful in that time. It's very interesting in verse 2. He says, not everyone has faith. In the original languages, not everyone has faith. Faithful is the Lord. <laughs> it's like he moves immediately from the unbelief of those around him to the faithfulness of God to sustain us and strengthen us in times of suffering and persecution. So he, he will enable you to be faithful to him in those times. So I want you to know if you are suffering, whether it's persecution for your faith or whether it's some other kind of suffering, you need to know you can trust the Lord. You can trust his word. His word is true. He will be faithful to you. He will sustain you. He will not abandon you. You may feel abandoned. Don't trust that feeling. He never abandons his people. Okay? And especially in times of suffering. In fact, I think he's, he's closer than ever in those times. You can trust the Lord. He is faithful. Even when we lack faith, he is faithful. So trust him. Cling to him. If you're in that kind of life situation, trust the Lord. Cling to him. He'll see you through it. Verses 4 and 5, he challenges them to consistent obedience. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. As we've seen several times, he's encouraged by their obedience, but he also wants them to continue to obey, continue to obey what he had taught them, what they've learned from the word of God. And his prayerful wish reminds us what we need in order to obey and to do it well and consistently and to suffer well and to pray well. We need, we need God's love. That is, as we come to know and trust the Father's love for us, then we, uh, we learn to trust him. And we, because we, we've received his love, believed his love, we return that love by 
obedience to him. We trust that what he commands is good. So we, we do, we obey him because of his love for us, our love in return. And then the perseverance of Christ. There is the example of Jesus persevering. That is, remember Acts 17, when this church was started, when Paul went to Thessalonica, that was the core of his message. It was the scriptures teach that Christ will suffer and then be glorified. And that is our path too. Suffering, then glory. Death, then resurrection. Um, there's, there's not a shortcut to this. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> that's our path. And he will give us grace to do just that day by day. As we look to Christ, we persevere through difficulty, whether it's persecution, whether it's suffering of any kind through, through life. We persevere because Christ persevered. Year of preaching here. I think this is the first time I've taken a drink of water. <clears throat> it's okay. Thank you, AV team, Chris. So knowing these things, we press on with just consistent obedience to the word. So let's just think about these gospel-centered prayer, faithfulness in times of suffering, and obedience, consistent pattern, habit of obedience to the Lord. If these things are part of our lives that's really going to help us avoid drifting from our mission. It's going to keep us. These are great things to keep us on track. Then in verses 6 to 15, he tells us to watch out for things that can turn us aside. He warns them against a problem that could consume their time and energy so that their prayer is hindered, their obedience is crippled, their perseverance is, is threatened, and they drift from their mission. He introduces the problem in verse 6. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. He repeats it in, in verse 11. We hear that some among you, so this is not theoretical, it's like, I know who you are, I can name names. Some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. That is, they're not working, they're working mischief. So the problem is idle and disruptive believers. These are believers. These are followers of Jesus, and yet they are, they are um, they're idle and disruptive. They were not working. Um, the reason doesn't really matter. Because they weren't working, they were dependent on others in the church for needs that sh they should have been providing for themselves, things like food, basics, right? It was happening when he wrote the first letter. If you've been here, you know we talked about those things. Um, and evidently it has grown worse. And he points out a couple of things that the idols are doing by being idle. That is, This is what they're doing by doing nothing, okay? So you never just do nothing. You always cause something even by doing nothing. So the, the, I'm not even sure how that came out. All right, so the idols, the idle people, they are first, they are disobeying apostolic commands. So let's notice this change in language. We look at, at um, it here in, in verse uh, six. He says in the... In the first letter, he said, we urge you, um, that is to deal with this. But here in verse 6, he says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've said before, Paul, he spoke, he taught with a thus says the Lord Jesus authority. But here he adds this to stress the importance and the urgency of this very issue. Um, <clears throat> so he basically, in effect, he's saying, you're not just disobeying people, you're disobeying Jesus in doing this. It's not just a matter of different, differing preferences, right? This, you know, if any of us were in our home countries 
in our home churches, we would have more of our preferences. We have to leave some of our preferences in the parking lot, so to speak, to, to come here. That's all right. This is not a, what that's about. This is a, a heart problem. And in First Thessalonians chapter 4, it's a love problem. It's a heart problem. It's a theological problem. It's a gospel problem. They were disobeying Jesus. He also says they are departing from apostolic example. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And Paul talked about the example that he and his team had set multiple times when they were with them early on. We saw it in Acts 17 and other places. So here's what he says from these verses. He says first, they were not idle. So that would be evident to anybody who had interacted with them when they were there. He said they didn't eat anyone's food without paying for it. So they probably shared a lot of meals with people, but they never in any way were a financial burden on their hosts. They worked hard and long hours to provide for their own needs so that they were not a burden to the church. They had the right to expect help. They had the right to expect financial support from the church there at Thessalonica, but they didn't demand it because they wanted to give them an example for them to imitate. And then they had this rule, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now this rule came in handy early 17th century. Settlers came, English settlers came to Jamestown, Virginia, 1607. And they were, they were included in this group of people. They were upper class gentlemen who, who just because of their social status felt that manual labor was beneath them. And so they were out looking for gold while the rest of the, the settlement was working. And um, of course they were also consuming the food <laughs> and other beverages and so on. Um, so in 1608, John Smith became governor of Jamestown, the leader of the colony settlement. And he instituted this rule, quoted this passage that said, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that solved their, their, their class struggle there. Um, so it's a good rule to keep in mind. It's a good rule to tell your kids, parents, you know, if you don't do your chores, you don't eat. You let me know how that works out. Now, don't tell me because I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but these verses help us see the importance of this issue. We might think, you know, it's just a few lazy people. Now, we're not talking about people who lost their jobs. We're not talking about people who were in a hard season. We're talking about people who were, they had stopped working. They had chosen to stop working for whatever reason and were dependent in an unhealthy way on others for things they should be getting for themselves. But who really cares? Well, Paul does and Jesus does. It's critical to the church's mission. This becomes clear in verse 9 where he says, we did this to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Remember, in the first letter, chapters 2 and 3, he recounts his time with them and his time after them, after he'd left. And he wrote that not just to, or not primarily, I think, to defend himself, but to equip them as they were sharing the gospel with others beyond them in their city, in their province, and beyond. He was, 
He was giving them an example. He and his team lived the way they lived so that the Thessalonians, the people they were engaging, would have a model. They would know how they were to live as they went to different places and shared the gospel and started churches. So these idle people were hindering this mission simply by not working, by not taking care of themselves. They were causing the church to turn inward to have to take care of its own when it should have a, an upward focus in worship and an outward focus for the gospel. And I've seen churches turned inward from not just problems like this, but by internal conflict, misplaced priorities, painful experiences. Things like this can happen and can turn an entire church from its mission. This, this wasn't the entire church that's, that were idle. There were some in the church, but it was affecting the entire community. So he he addresses this problem then with a word to the idol and then a word to the church. So in verse 12, he commands the idol to take responsibility for their lives. Verse 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, emphatic command type wording, to settle down, earn the food they eat. So let's just know this. Paul expected the idol to be in church, okay? <laughs> he expected them to hear this letter read, okay? He knew they'd be there. And I imagine there were some awkward glances that day in that church because everybody knew who he was talking about, right? Of course. Like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, right. I know. I, yeah, you know who you are. Okay. He knew they were there. The, such people we command in the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down, earn the food they eat. So that's a command given to them. He expected them to be present as the church was gathered and to hear this. They probably didn't see themselves as the problem in my Oh, 39 or so years in ministry, such people rarely see themselves as problems. <laughs> problem people rarely see themselves as the problem. They see other people as the problem. I mean, that's the problem I see in other people. So, uh, thank you. Gosh, you know how gratifying it is to actually have you laugh when I say something that I think will be funny. So, I've waited a year for this. So, it's great. Just such a great feeling. So, um, where am I? All right. Um, so he expected them to hear it. He commands them, take responsibility for your life. Stop depending on others for things that you should be earning for yourself. He says, settle down. That is work quietly. That's the opposite of being disruptive and earn the food you eat. This goes back to creation because in creation, God established, he ordained work as the primary way our material needs are met. Then in verses 13 to 15, he tells the church to take responsibility for its health and not drift from its mission. So he's got a word to the idol, but also a word to the church. Verse 13, he says, As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. We might imagine that what he had just said about you know, urging the idol to, to settle down, earn the food they eat, it, it might give uh, some of the folks in the church who were working, who'd been meeting the needs of others, to to just give them pause to say, well, maybe we just ought to have a blanket policy that says no help to anybody. But Paul's saying, no, that would misunderstand the point because challenging the idol to work doesn't mean we don't help those in need. We should and we do. This is a question of how best to help. Okay? Our first impulse, I think, should be to help the immediate situation. I recall some of our discussions, even in elders' meetings with benevolence needs, you know, we, we're, there's always this desire to help, and yet there's always this desire. We want to be sure we're not enabling irresponsibility, and there's always that tension. But we're happy to help whenever we can, and we work prayerfully through those decisions of 
How do we help wisely in these situations? And it's always a case-by-case thing. Well, sometimes we're asking this question, how, what's the best way to help? And sometimes saying no is the way to help. And that's hard, right? It feels unkind. But he urges the church also to deal with the idol. Verse 14, he says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet don't regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And this is believers in the church that are doing this. So he's urging the church to take action. He says, do not associate with the idol. It's also similar to verse 6 where he said, keep away from them. And that would mean saying no to them at some point because they are needy. They, they're not working. So they're hungry. They come to you. And he basically says, at some point, you're going to have to say no. Because by saying yes, by meeting their need, you are enabling irresponsible behavior. And it's hard to do because the need is real. It feels unkind. I've been on both sides of, of this decision of, of helping to give to meet needs and, and being the needy person who needed help in a hard time. And yeah, it's, it's hard and it feels unkind to say no if it's hard to be told no. And yet there is a greater need. So we want to help, but we have to guard against help that in the long term hurts. So he says, don't associate with them. He says to you, you withdraw. You, you, at some point you have to say no. You have to uh, avoid them if they continue, if they persist in this. But this is, this is designed to be redemptive. It is designed to bring them a sense of shame. That they will regret what they are doing. And that they will basically... Get back on the team, get back in the game, back in the mission. This is, all of this is intended to bring about change. And then there is a warning. He says for them to warn, the, warn to the idol about the seriousness of their actions and the consequences. But again, this is done redemptively. This is, he says, don't warn them as an enemy. You warn them as a brother, as a fellow believer, as a brother or a sister, because you want to see them reclaimed and effective for the Lord. And idle believers are not the only cause of mission drift. You know, we can sit here today and say, well, you know, okay, well, we thank God that, you know, most of us are employed or in school or, you know, we're still under our parents' care. So we're we're exempt. You know, there are other ways this happens. It can happen through sin. It can happen through doctrinal error. It can happen uh, just through misplaced priorities. Um, our, our, um, Our modern culture tries to convince us to shift blame for our problems to our parents or to our circumstances and see ourselves as, as victims uh, because those are the, the kind of the heroes today. And, you know, honestly, uh, let me say first, there are victims, and that's real and terrible and it's painful. But not taking away from that. I'm ta- what I'm talking about is people who are not really victims, and yet they find a way to gain that label for themselves. And that's just nonsense. And it can cripple your spiritual life and it can affect your community. So you have to take responsibility for your life. The church has to take responsibility for his health. As we come to this final section, it's actually a good way for us to conclude uh, the series as well. It says in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So remember, 
Uh, from verse 16, remember behind his word peace is shalom. This Hebrew word shalom that just means general well-being, wholeness, prosperity, and health. So it's a, a blessing that the Lord would bless them in a, in a great variety of ways. But the, the idle folks in the church are, they're messing with the shalom, okay? So, so don't mess with the shalom. <laughs> you need to take responsibility and engage in what the Lord has for you. And then he says he wrote this greeting in his own hand, and he reminds him, I do this with all my letters, which I think is, is sort of an indirect way of saying, remember chapter 2 when you were fooled by this fake message? Dummies, I always put this mark in my letters. You should know. You should have recognized it because what they were saying was different from what I taught you. But there's also the little mark, you know. You, don't be stupid. Okay. And then verse 18, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And indeed, may his grace be with us as a church, especially in this season of transition as Mike comes, begins his ministry. So may we stay true to our purpose of worshiping Jesus, being focused on the mission he's given us, not distracted or deterred. And on a personal note, Karen and I would like to say the grace of the Lord be with you all. We have to return to the U.S. for a short time, a few months. We leave this week. We'll be back, God willing, in the spring. I thank the Lord for the privilege I've had of preaching to you. Um, I appreciate the trust from you. I mean, some of you have showed up again. <laughs> so, some of you have kept coming, like for whatever reason. Uh, you know, I don't question your judgment, but you. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of you are forced to come. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate the appreciate the affirmation there, brother, and you too. We do love you. I do appreciate the trust in you from the elders, uh, from the leadership with uh, my own organization who given me the latitude to do this. Um, preaching regularly, something I haven't done in a while. It was a, a lot of work, but it was a joy. And I have to say it was a lot less work than trying to deal with an interim pastor. So in the end, I, in a way, I guess I'm sort of selfish. Um, I'd also like to say again that all of the elders have stepped up, and many of you have stepped up in this time of transition and have, um, have done so many things uh, in the year plus since Drew left. And uh, so I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for my fellow elders. I don't see, I see Allie, who's married to an elder. I don't know, Trev, I've evidently had something better to do today. So, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but again, I just want to publicly express my thanks uh, to those brothers. They, they love and serve you well. Just know that. I've had the most visible role, but that doesn't mean the others have not stepped up. And I, I see Ken up in the balcony. There you are. Good. So there, Ken is there. So I'm grateful for these brothers um, just for the way each has stepped up in different ways. Um, <clears throat> Karen and I, of course, we're, um, we're really happy about Mike coming. Been emailing with him this week. And I pray that God will bless his ministry and his family here at ICP. As they begin the ministry, I hope they will be here many years. Um, you know, many years. Which is a way of saying, I don't want to go through this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, may the grace of Christ be with you who are here online, but you have not yet believed in Jesus. So we pray that you will come to know the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, who by his death satisfied the wrath of God for us, by his resurrection conquered death for us, and today offers us forgiveness and freedom and fullness of life 
to any and all who will turn from their sin and put their hope in him. And if you want to know more about this, do please see one of us after the service today. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've taught us uh, through your word here today and in the previous weeks. Thank you for the way you've just shown your love for the church and sustaining us through this transition. We thank you for your goodness to us. I pray, Father, for just whatever has been good and worthy of keeping that you would seal in our hearts. Anything else can be blown away like chaff. But we pray that you will help us walk in obedience to you, that we would worship you with all that we do, and out of that, bring others into the enjoyment of your glory. And may you be glorified. May our faith, hope, and love be in you and you alone, because you deserve the faith, hope, and love of every person to the ends of the earth. May it be so for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.